So uh, you probably haven't heard of our podcast. So oh, for one, thank you for just even taking the time out of your day. Sure. To, uh, come on. You will probably find that we're not good inter- um, interviewers, if that's even a word. We just like to chat about things. So there really is no real introduction, although we can if you want to or or if Gomer wants to. He always wants to. I just like to dive into it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Father James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest, cultural editor of American Magazine, and author of numerous books, including My Life with the Saints, which publisher weekly named one of the best books of 2006. Father Martin is a frequent commenter in the national and international media, having appeared in such diverse outlets as The Colbert Report, Fresh Air, The O'Reilly Factor, News Hour with Jim Lillard, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and The Boston Globe. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Father Reverend James. Order. I think that's how we should that's how we should introduce them. <laughs> okay, and what are your what are your backgrounds? Luke is currently the Archdiocese <laughs> director of the new <laughs> at the Archdiocese. <laughs> okay. And I work at a parish uh doing adult faith formation, but I got a background in um youth ministry and doing other stuff like that. Um and a master's I have a master's in theology and then Luke used to be a school principal. Isn't that right, Luke? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, we we both met while being out in college out in Steubenville, Ohio. Mm-hmm. So that's where I would say like the like our core audience was, and kind of because that's that's you know our network, and mm-hmm. it really just came out of that. Okay, and uh, you know, Luke, uh, I think a friend of mine just took a job, and did did you meet Matt Wildgoss? Do you know him at all? Yes, yeah, he's I a think- great guy. Yes, uh, he was with a uh, relevant radio. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I, j- I actually just met him this past this uh, past week. We were both. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, he's a really nice guy. You'll love oh, him. Oh, cool. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. He he has a great head of hair. Yeah, that guy. I was <laughs> yes. very impressed. Yes, he does. That that alone should have gotten him hired, right? <laughs> yeah, I was like, way to go. Oh my gosh. Uh, so yeah, whenever you're ready, we can start. Cool. You want to take it, Gilmer? Sure. Uh, so, Father James, a lot of the things that we like to do, um, especially when we have clergy on the show, is just talk a little bit about your background and how you um, kind of like heard the call, received your vocation to the priesthood. So, uh, But you have a book about it, uh, Good Company, where you talk about going uh, – you're on the executive track at GE uh, under Jack Welsh and all that good stuff. And then you entered into a life of poverty, chastity, obedience. Uh, I think that is fascinating. I actually have a, a good friend of mine who worked under uh, the uh, worked at GE, and he worked up in um, Schenectady uh, oh, yeah. for a while. And uh, he had he he tells me some crazy stories about uh, being in board meeting or meetings with with Jack Welsh and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what 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 was it? So I, I don't know. Just give us a little bit of your your background. Uh, from this life, like what led you from uh, the corporate world into into the life of the vocation of a, a Jesuit priest? Sure. Well, I graduated from uh, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, which is a business school, and I uh, got a degree in finance. The joke was finance, not finance. Finance was a lot more high class. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they said you get $10,000 more a year if you were in finance. And I took a job with uh, GE uh, in New York City. Um, you know, I, I started out in the uh, at Wharton 
fairly confident that I wanted to do business, but also uh, I had no one really ask me what I wanted to do in my life, and there was really no one asked me that asked me that essential question that I think that uh, you know really everybody should be asked. What would you do if you could do anything you wanted to do? And I sort of you know stepped onto this treadmill, started working at GE, and at the beginning it was kind of interesting and exciting. I was 21, 22, I guess. Uh, in New York City with a lot of money and nice clothes and going out clubbing and it was fun. It was exciting. Uh, wait, wait, wait though, was this in the 80s, right? It was, So yeah, you, were going, I mean, you were in the club scene in New York in the 80s. That is absolutely correct. And I can <laughs> I'm a name, little jealous. <laughs> I can name all the clubs. Uh, I went to the Pyramid Club and Area and 8BC and... So much cocaine. So Palladium. Much. <laughs> well, yeah, not, not too much for me. Um, <laughs> Good to hear. But, um, you know, eventually the work just for me got rather dull and boring. I moved to uh, GE Capital in Connecticut, which is the financial services arm. I must said our financial services arm. I still do that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it just got more and more stressful and less and less interesting. And, you know, if you'd asked me 15, 20 years ago, I would have said, oh, you know, it's terrible. It's a terrible place to work. But it just wasn't for me. It was just it just wasn't my vocation. I, you know, I have plenty of friends who are in the business world and who continued on with GE for, you know, years and years, 20 years, 30 years. But for me, it was just the wrong place. And I didn't really know how to get out. And uh, one night I came home and turned on the TV set and saw a TV show about Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk. And that really changed my life. Just that documentary. I, I didn't know anything at all about religious life, i.e. life in a religious order. I read his book, The Seven Story Mountain. And that turned me on to the idea of being a priest and entering a religious order. And then I met someone who said, you should talk to the Jesuits. I didn't know what a Jesuit was. I mean, I had a vague notion that they, they were. They run colleges with good sports teams, right? So they say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, then I, I started to really get stressed out and had all these stress-related illnesses like stomach problems and started to see a therapist and I guess about a, two years into the therapy, you know, it was a lot about why are you doing what you're doing, why are you unhappy, and so finally he said, you know, why are you why are you doing this? Why are you doing this work that you don't like? And I said, well, I don't know what else I would do, meaning I, you know, I, I only have a business degree, not only, but you know, the the one thing I know how to do is business. And he said, what would you do if you could do anything you wanted to do? And I said, well, I'd be a Jesuit. And he said, why don't you? And I thought. It was kind of the scales coming from my eyes, a la Paul. I said, yeah, why don't I? <laughs> so I called up the Jesuits from whom I had gotten material about two years ago, and I said, I'm ready to join. And they were like, who are you? <laughs> because so then, then, I, then I got in a couple months later. So I've, I mean, I have done the whole what's my um, vocation thing. Please let it be marriage. Um, that was kind of uh, my track. So, like, I don't even know, like, how – how that process works as 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 um especially for uh, the jesuits because i mean i'm under the um because like you're there for a long time in 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 school right a With long time yeah. yeah so like how does that work if you know like you aren't in your like if you're in your um later like the um later part of your 20s as opposed to like the early part or you know your oh, late teens 
Well, that's a good question. You know, most of the people that enter the Jesuits these days are actually in their mid to late 20s. So that's not all that okay. unusual for a guy to enter. Uh, we have some provinces, for example, in the South, uh, that take guys out of high school. Most of the provinces in the United States ask guys to go through college. But the process of entering uh, is is really pretty simple. It's It's trusting your desires, praying, working with the vocation director, going on retreats, meeting other Jesuits, uh, coming to vocation days, and just seeing if this is something that appeals to you. And God essentially works through your desires. That's the way that I always like to say, you know, the simplest way of looking at it is married life. You know, God calls people together, a man and a woman who are attracted to each other physically, emotionally, spiritually. That's desire. And God calls people to the priesthood and religious life in the same way, through desire. So, But you have to test that desire out, and you meet with the vocation director, and then you apply, and, and, and you know, we also trust that God's working through the application process, and then you are accepted. And then it's, and then it's about 11 to 12 years of formation. Wow. That's, that is a long time. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, I'll, I'll break it down for you. It's uh, you enter, the day you enter uh, is the day you become a Jesuit, which popular misconception, people say when you take vows, you're a Jesuit or when you're ordained. Uh, and so it's two years of novitiate, which is basically a lot of prayer, learning about the society and working with the poor, a great deal of work with the poor. Then you take your first vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Then you do what's called first studies. Uh, which is in a Jesuit school somewhere, a Jesuit college, and it's usually philosophy and theology. Then you do what's called regency, which is two or three years of full-time work. So they're usually in a high school, not always. I worked with uh, refugees. Then you go on to theology, and that's three to four years. You get your master's in divinity, your, and your, usually your licentiate in sacred theology. Not all Jesuits are priests, uh, but those who are priests uh, are ordained after that. And then you work full-time for a few years, and then you go back to more training, and you do what's called tertianship, which is third year, so-called, of novitiate. And then you take your final vows, and, you know, I entered in 1988, and I took my final vows in 2009. <laughs> so it took, it took 21 years. Wow. I thought yeah, you were going to say, so I, so I got in yesterday or something. Like that. <laughs> yeah, well, close enough. Yeah, you might as well. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, Ignatius wanted his men to be well-prepared and well-trained and well-educated. That was very important for him. He felt at the time that, uh, you know, given the, the sort of milieu of the church, it was very important for him to have men who were educated. And he himself had a master's degree. So that was a very important value for him, which, you know, goes a little bit of ways to explaining why we take quite so long. Yeah, yeah. And why the Franciscans, like Francis famously, when he founded the order, didn't have like a, a education model. They kind of rejected it until Anthony and, and some others came along. But that would explain why Franciscans are such dullards compared to the Jesuits. Oh, I'm wow. just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, the, the old joke is Francis said, which I love, and, I, you know, Jesuits obviously need to learn a lot from the Franciscans, that, that Je- Francis said, you shouldn't own a book because if you own a book, you're going to want a bookshelf. Yeah. And if you have a bookshelf... You're going to say to someone, some other brother, oh, brother, please bring me my book for my bookshelf. <laughs> so it does kind of lead to things. So they, they, they were, yeah, they were kind of against that, which, you know, it just shows different charisms and spiritualities. I mean, Absolutely. Uh, Jesuit without a bookshelf is like a, 
you know, fish without gills, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, the Pope was elected, that that had to be a pretty big deal for you guys' order. Like, what was uh, the vibe at that um, at that time with with in the Jesuits? Well, I, I think it was it was uh, it was hard. To, it's hard to describe. Uh, it was shocking, first of all, because. Number one, uh, we take we make a promise never to strive for or ambition high office in the church. So it's very unusual that we're even made bishops or cardinals. That's usually it's very unusual. And so the fact that you would have a Jesuit in the conclave was unusual to begin with. Cardinal Martini was in the last one, the one that elected Pope Benedict. And most of us didn't really know Jorge Mario Bergoglio. And frankly, you know, in the society, and you can read this anywhere. He had something of a sort of controversial yeah. uh, reputation. And so all I knew, <laughs> all I knew was, you know, I knew his name before going in and I was kind of helping out some media outlets with the conclave. And so I was, you know, pretty attentive to that stuff. And I mentioned it uh, to someone and I said, you know, who is this Jorge Mario Bergoglio? And this Jesuit said, oh, he'd be terrible. (laughs) (laughs) So he gets elected, and I thought, oh, this guy's going to be terrible. But then, you know, the first thing he does is pick Francis, which is beautiful. Then he asks for people to pray for him, which is also beautiful. And then he opens up his mouth and gives this beautiful speech. And I thought, this guy's not so terrible. And, you know, I really fell in love with him within the first few days. And it really – but to answer your question directly was – very moving for us and, and really transformative and just, just, uh, also, uh, you know, the Jesuits, as you know, are seen in some quarters of the church with suspicion, which as I think is unfortunate. And it's a kind of, it was a kind of, uh, you know, in a sense, rehabilitation for us. I mean, because, you know, it's kind of hard to say the Jesuits are on the house with the church if the Jesuit is the Pope. And uh, my favorite my favorite comment comes from uh, Father Lombardi, who was the recently retired papal spokesman. Uh, he was asked at a news conference. And excuse me, he told me this. I forget. Uh, forgot. He said people said to him, what does this mean? And he just threw up his hands and said, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to be very there's busy. Been, there's never been one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what it means. Because there's never been one. What does it mean? You know, and, and what, how will he treat the Jesuits? And does he still consider himself a Jesuit? And wh- is he going to be speaking like a Jesuit? And it's just been fascinating. And, you know, a lot of us laugh at it because it's so unusual. And it's also, we all laugh because, you know, he's such a sort of force of nature. We say he will be the first and last at Jesuit Pope. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding. What's so- <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So, uh do you think of him as a Jesuit pope? I mean, like the the way that he is going yeah. about. Yeah, you do. Yeah, uh, he he is a Jesuit. He actually, when he speaks to Jesuits, he'll say "we." Yeah. Uh, he put the Jesuit coat of arms on his papal seal, and you know the way he speaks about spirituality uh, is very Jesuit. I'll give you a funny story. When he was celebrating Easter Mass on the first year. I was at my sister's home watching it with my mom and my sister's family. And this is a true story. And my mom, you know, he starts to talk about imagining yourself running to the tomb with Mary Magdalene, which is a very Jesuit way of praying. I mean, it's not the only, you know, it's not the only way that Jesuits pray. And it's also other people talk about it that way. But it is sort of a 
characteristically Jesuit way. You know, imagine yourself in the scene. Imagine running to the tomb. And my mother said, I'd just written a book on Jesuit spirituality. Did he read your book? (laughs) 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 So there's that. That's how sort of obvious it is to people. Um, and, and, you know, he'll, he, he, he talks about discernment and discernment of spirit. So, so there's a lot of, if, if you know what to look for now, I think the great thing is he doesn't make it, uh, sort of explicit. Yeah. So he doesn't say, well, you know, as I was taught as a Jesuit novice, blah, blah. he just says, you know, imagine yourself running to the tomb. So I, I think otherwise it would be very off-putting to people. You know, it would be it would be very kind of inside baseball. So, yeah. but he, he he handles it very well, I think. So, did you tell your mom that yes, the Pope totally reads my books? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is highly doubtful. <laughs> he, he likes my stuff. What can I say? Yeah, that's right. That's right. He stole that from me. Right. Your mom's just spreading that around now. Yeah, well, my exactly. son, my son, the Pope learns from. Well, I tell you, uh, one of the things that's been much easier now is, you know, as you know, you you both know this that. Religious orders, religious life. It's it's very confusing for even for Catholics. It's like, mm-hmm. wait, are you in a parish or what do you do? And yeah. so now when people say, What's a Jesuit? I say, The Pope. Look at the Pope. I mean, that's his life and what he's done and you know, except for being Archbishop and Cardinal in terms of he was novice director and then he was, you know, the provincial and this is his spirituality and he tries to live simply and he's meeting people where they are and so they say, Okay, I get that. That's that's that way. That's his way of being Catholic and that's the Jesuit way. One of the things that I find really interesting about uh, the reaction to Pope Francis, especially by American, um, American, you know, blogosphere people and commentators and all this stuff on both the left and the right, is that everyone, no one seems to be able to g- grab hold of him, like, and put him definitively in this or that camp, which mm-hmm. is one of the reasons why I love him. But there is this, uh, there's this notion, like, the way I explain the Pope, because he's so different from uh jp2 and benedict in a lot of ways um the way i explain it is you know jp2 brought us um kind of rekindled a lot of foundational theology with modern language you know personalist philosophy Mm -hmm. phenomenology Mm -hmm. uh pope benedict uh you know he brought he brought the 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 brilliance and the zeal of traditional catholicism you know into the modern world i felt like but then you Mm -hmm. have francis and he's like a like a firecracker or something and uh so many people don't understand him and i just say just imagine someone who is at their core an evangelist someone who just Mm -hmm. wants to serve other people by making god's love and christ jesus known to them and he does that but he's talking to the world from the church he's not talking to the church and I think a lot of people get so, like, lost in that or frustrated in it. Because I feel like Pope Francis would leverage the entire weight and history of the papacy to convert a taxicab driver in Rome. You know? <laughs> That's true. Right? That's true. Right? And they so, would, and, you know, and, and it's probably worth it, right? Yeah, you know, for exactly. one soul. Exactly. And so, you know, like, why don't you stay in my apartment? Right? Like, I <laughs> yeah, think he would, do, he would do things like that. Um and that's this notion, like, so, for instance, um, one of his controversial sayings, he talked about um, a woman that he had met who had had eight kids, and he's like, the church teaches uh, to space your kids out. We're not rabbits. And uh, yeah. one person was super offended because his wife, they've, they've had uh, several kids, and his wife, her health was, isn't great. 
but they believe that God has called them to generosity and, and, you know, um, and I said, God does call us to generosity, but, but what you don't see is that this, like, if you read one of the articles, you know, I had to kind of chase down the rabbit hole, but it was this woman's, essentially her life was in danger and, and she was essentially thinking that I have to keep having more kids. Yeah. And so he was, but but the way he said it, I said, don't you hear him correcting the misunderstanding yeah. of the world? Right. You know, and so I don't know if you want to speak to that or. I, I think that's a very, I think that's a very, very well said. And I, I would, I would. Did you hear that, Luke? That. He said it was well said. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would say two things. Uh, one, your initial. Uh, portrait of John Paul Benedict and Francis, I think, is right on the money. And here's and I'm glad you brought that up. Here's a peep what what sort of makes drives me to distraction. They're three different men. They're proclaiming the gospel three different ways. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, John Paul was a philosopher. Benedict's a theologian. You know, Francis is primarily a pastor. Right. I mean, novice director, provincial. That's fine. I mean, you know, the three of us would would talk about Jesus in a different way. And I think part of it is people got so used to the ways that uh, St. John Paul now and Pope Emeritus Benedict proclaimed the gospel that they thought that was the only way or the the best way. And it's it's just not. I mean, John Paul brought a certain group of people to the church through his evangelization, you know, millions of people. So did Benedict, you know, through his writings and his encyclicals. Uh, and, and Francis is bringing different people to church. That's fine. And he speaks about, uh, things in a different way. It's a little more earthy. It's a little more direct. So that's the first thing it's, it's fine. And I think people really are getting their knickers in a twist for no good reason. Right. Uh, and the second point I think is really interesting in terms of the rabbits. Francis meets people where they are, which is what Jesus did. And so Francis is speaking to that person. And so if that person needs a kind of earthy metaphor, you know, even like a funny metaphor to really drive things home, he uses it. You know, he's speaking in a different way to an individual than he is to, you know, in his encyclical. I mean, he doesn't talk like that in Evangelic Gaudium or Laudato Si or Morris Laetitia. He just doesn't. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, a, that's a good teacher. I mean, you know, you tailor your message to, if I'm speaking to you on a podcast, I'm going to speak differently than I'm going to speak to the New York Times or to Vatican Radio or or writing an article or uh, you know or or to someone in confession it's just it's just meeting people where they are so that's that's part of it that that's his style and i think that's a good style to have and i think we need to be a little more relaxed about things in the church yeah one of my favorite uh like things that have happened is you know um people will be like oh this pope he's such a a hardcore left wing you know yeah. liberal progressive and i was yeah. like he excommunicated the mafia like, yeah. <laughs> who else did that? Like, he yeah, excommunicated seriously. the mafia because he saw that there was this, in, in the hearts and minds of many Italians, that there was this complicitness between church yeah. and, and La Cosa Nostra or something like that. And he excommunicated, like, who does yeah. that? No, you know. It's, I know. Yeah. It's just, and the thing is, we, we're so, no, it is true. I mean, there are certain aspects of him that seem more progressive, some seem more traditional, right. but... I mean, you know, it's the same with John Paul. I mean, look at John Paul on the economy or labor. Right. Right. I mean, look at look at some of his encyclicals or, or, you know, look at his position in terms of uh, solidarity in Poland. I mean, you know, there's a guy who's, I don't know, I mean, he's fighting for labor and he's talking and and Benedict, who talked about income redistribution. You know, I mean, so it, it's kind of silly to try to box these guys. In. And I think that the most important thing for Catholics to do is to just really listen to them. Let them all touch your heart in a different way and, you know, let them invite you to Jesus. Yeah. Which is, you know, really what it's about. It's it's not about 
John Paul or Benedict or Francis. It's about Jesus, and they'd all be the first ones to tell you that. Okay, let's mm-hmm. say John Paul, Benedict, and Francis, all 30 <laughs> years old, prime of life, who would win in a cage match? I, I knew you were going to say that. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say not not Benedict, that's for sure. No. Uh, no. I think he's more of a, a, a sort of a, a I'm scholar. a reader, not a fighter. <laughs> yeah. A scholar. I don't know. I'd say, I'd say, I'd say John Paul. I think I he's a little more... He's tougher, although Francis, like, I mean, Francis was a bouncer, actually, at a, at a tango club in Buenos Aires. Did you know that? Yeah. yeah that's that's awesome. I did not know that. That is amazing. See, yeah. I was going to put my money on, um, on Pope Francis. Yeah. Because I feel like he's a little bit more streetwise. Now, John Paul II. <laughs> that's so funny. Francis like, is totally street. <laughs> well, on the other, if you want to play this game, because my, my friends, we play this game in terms of, like, fictional characters. On the other hand, you know, John Paul had to deal with Nazis and communists. Exactly. So. Yeah. That is pretty streetwise. I know. Oh, By the way, I was, I was just at that uh, National Shrine of John Paul. Have you been there in D.C.? Oh, uh-uh. I haven't. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Nice. Yeah, a, bunch of, it's re- a bunch of my church really nice. just went up to World Youth Day. Uh, this is the sad part of not being a youth minister anymore. I don't get a fully paid trip to Europe whenever they have a World Youth Day. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And so they went to, uh, they did like Rome and Assisi, and then they went to, um, you know, did all the JP2, um, you know, seeing his home and all this stuff. And a lot of a lot of people said that the best part of the whole trip was encountering the life and story of, of like a young um, St. John Paul. So. Yeah, I'm well, we tend to it. forget about that. We tend to forget about them as young men because, yeah. you know, for a lot of uh, people, you know, like in the 90s, I mean, they saw John Paul as sort of elderly and frail. Yeah. And I remember I saw him in 1979 at, in Philadelphia during his first uh, papal trip. You know, he's a young guy. Yeah. I mean, he's three years older than I was. I am now. And, you know, 58, I think. And that was that. I mean, he was really vigorous. You oh, know, wow. it's it's wow. Yeah. So I mean, because we're we are of um, uh, we are at the age where he's always kind of been elderly to us. I think you know because I mean I was born in eighty three, and and um, that's that's really crazy to think of just how young he was when he started his papacy. And re- you look at videos of him if you have a moment on. I'm sure they're on YouTube. Uh, certainly when he gets elected and he comes on the balcony, he's really like looks like this, you know, kind of vigorous guy and then when he's in the united states in 1979 go look at those videos uh he's really he's he's just he's he's this young vigorous athletic strong guy and you know speaking you know he's obviously speaking in broken english but it's pretty impressive i mean he's not he's not the john paul with parkinson's uh you know another interesting thing about how different these two men are and i i like to i like to use this as an example i never tire of using this John Paul, so John Paul's a saint, who's obviously holy. Benedict's very holy man. One said, I'm not going to resign the papacy, even if I'm weak, because I'm a spiritual father. There's no resigning your fatherhood. That's John Paul. Benedict resigns. Now, they, two holy men in the exact same office did something totally different. And so that's the point, that, you know, people do things different ways. It's okay. What's right for John Paul wasn't right for Benedict and vice versa. And I frankly think that the greatest thing Benedict ever did in terms of uh, his spirituality was that resignation. That was an amazing act of humility and really stunned me. It still does today. And one of the most amazing things John Paul did was to stay on. Yeah. And they're opposite. And so this notion that we have to put these people into kind of 
cookie cutter models and say they have to be exactly the same is ridiculous. Um, I'm really glad that they brought that up because that's that's that that's actually one one other reasons why I wanted to do our our podcast is uh, because like we I mean we went to we went to school out in out in Steubenville we are conservative Catholics we're part of that group and I think that as Americans we tend to uh, like say like you're this and only this is good and I wanted to talk with others who or just you know like have these um, have conversations with individuals who might challenge us uh, because because if not we you know we just um, uh, become an, you know, echo chamber, if you will, like the one great article I'm um, talked about. Um, have you have like have you experienced that here, you know, in, in America where it's like you either have to be a um, a conservative Catholic or you have to be a progressive Catholic? And have you seen that at all? Oh, <laughs> every day. Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> every so. day. Every day online, every day on Twitter, every day on Facebook, uh, you know, not as much in the office because people are, you know, a little more, they are much more open-minded uh, than, than, than people who are rigid on the left and the right. Uh, and it really pains me, frankly, because we're all on the same team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a bit, that's a big topic, basically. I mean, I, um, I think there are a lot of problems going on. Number one is a fundamental inability to give people the benefit of the doubt and to say, well, let me listen to your experience of the church or of Jesus, right? Let me listen to your experience of John Paul or, or Benedict or, or Francis. Uh, let me listen to, you know, what you think about the gospels and, you know, how you came to, you know, embrace Christ you know, I'm really open to listening to that. No, what you get is, oh, you like Francis? Oh, well, then you're you're this left wing Catholic. I don't like him. He's not he's not a real pope, and therefore you don't like John Paul. It, it's crazy. Or oh, you oh you oh you went to World Youth Day. Oh, you must be. Or you went to Steubenville. Oh, you must be. You must hate Francis. It's insane. And so so we don't give people the benefit of the doubt. That's the first thing. Second of all, we actually don't listen to people. <laughs> There is a kind of echo chamber, and we don't listen to what people are saying because we've already shut them down. Uh, and third of all, we demonize them, which is the worst thing, the absolute mm-hmm. worst. You know, Jesus uh, in one of the Gospels says, if you call anyone a raka, which means a fool, uh, you're liable to the fiery Gehenna. So basically, if you call someone a name, you're going to hell. And we do that all the time. Let me give you an example. Uh, last week, I, I post a gospel tweet every morning, you know, just a sort of small thing. And I said, uh, you know, I was talking about the, uh, the woman, the, the woman, the Canaanite woman, you know, who says, you know, to Jesus, will you heal my daughter? And Jesus says, it's not right for, uh, me to give the, uh, the dogs, only the dogs get, but let me say, what, what does he say? It's not right to give the dogs grass from the table. And then she says, as you know, even dogs get scraps from the table. Oh, it's not right to feed the dogs the children's food. And she responds and says, even the dogs get the scraps from the table. And he 
says for your, your faith is great. So I put a tweet up and I said, you know, it seems like Jesus is learning, you know, from this woman. I mean, there's the human side. We believe him to be human and divine. So maybe that's a sign of the human side. You know, it's a 140 character tweet. I had dozens, scores of people saying heretic. I couldn't believe it. And I, you know, very patiently wrote back, you know, I believe in Jesus, fully human, fully divine. How those two things work together is really a mystery. You know what I mean? And I mm. actually tweeted a couple more things and said, here's how I understand it. You know, like it's the human and the divine side working together. The human side seems to be challenged by this woman. He does change his mind. I mean, if you read the story, we have to take what Mark said realistically. And then he heals the woman. There's the divine side. And it's very mysterious how that comes through. And it's just beautiful. And it's something we'll never understand. Heretic, heretic again. You're a heretic, 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 heretic. I couldn't believe it. How do you handle that? Honestly, honestly, well, I had to actually step back and say to myself, look, (laughs) I believe Jesus is fully human, fully divine. I wrote a whole book Mm -hmm. on it, right? (laughs) I mean, I wrote a whole book on that. And, uh, I think that some of the people who were tweeting me were actually uncomfortable with his humanity. And it's a very mysterious question since we're on a podcast, we can talk about it. I mean, if he's fully human, he has a fully human consciousness, right? And a fully human consciousness only knows what it is, has been taught. If he's fully divine, then he has a fully divine consciousness and a fully divine consciousness knows everything. It's omniscient. How do those two things work together? I have no idea. (laughs) You know, but we have to kind of meditate on them and think about them. And so I said to myself, I think that these people are, A, actually uncomfortable with his divinity. B, they're not listening to me. And C, they're actually kind of mean and hateful. So I stepped back and I just said, all right, that's it. You know, I'm just I'm bowing out of this conversation. But that that's a case in point, which was really shocking to me, even after all these years on being on social media. Like, why are you calling me a heretic? And you know, what, what, what does that do for you? And it just shuts people down. And let me tell you, the left is sometimes just as bad. Yeah. So, yeah, the, whatever, um, because that's, it is such a, it's a mystery, which means that the human mind it's, it's above human reason. And yes, that doesn't mean that it's untrue, but that means that (laughs) applying reason to it means, yeah, it also means we can't think about it and, you know, discuss it and ponder it and say, Oh, what about this? Or, And I wrote back to them. I said, look, you know, in Matthew, he says there are some things only the father knows, not the son. Yeah. You know, in Luke, it says he grew grew in wisdom and in years. How is he growing in wisdom if he knows all things already? Heretic. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I thought this is insane. So, you know, and the other thing is I know better and I don't get into arguments on Twitter. I do not. (laughs) It's useless. You are better than me. (laughs) Father James, come. We need to do compline. I can't. Someone's wrong on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that would be a good cartoon, right? Uh, uh, well, it, it already was. I stole it. Modified oh, there, you okay. there you go. <laughs> Nothing you. about me is original. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so, so that, that's a case in point of a kind of uh, inability to listen, inability to respect, and inability to give people the benefit of the doubt. Well, and to, yeah, I mean, I, I just – so I have actually been banned from our – Catholicism on um, <laughs> on Reddit, and uh, I created a whole new account just to uh, get back in there. And it was from we had uh, we we were going to interview Shane Claiborne, 
and I was, he's someone that I just, I think he's, uh, he's just amazing. And so I asked him, Hey, would you guys ever, I'm like, like, like what questions would, would, you know, uh, you guys all like me to ask, like ask him. And this, you know, this one guy just pretty much just went off on him because of like, you know, God knows what. And I, and I just thought, I just got so angry that I just started to engage this guy. And I'm like, you know, turns out he was some high school kid. Yes. And I'm like, why am I, why am I fighting with a seven year old? I think it was the same kid that was after me. <laughs> no, I, I went to one, I go to these uh, Twitter accounts and, you know, one of the kids was 19. There's nothing wrong with that, but you know, I, I've, I've studied a little theology. Anyway, I, I interrupted you. What were you going to say? So did you, did you continue to engage him or? Oh yeah. To the point where I got banned. Yeah, so Luke, Luke immediately goes to the nuclear option, starts dropping F-bombs, the moderators tell him to calm down, and then he cusses them out. And then, uh, and then it's all connected to my website, layevangelist.com. So thank Boy, you. Can I, can I tell you something funny? I, I actually, what I do is uh, I sometimes mute people so that they, yeah. can, they can see my account and they can say what they want. They can have the freedom to say what they want, but I don't have to you know, look at all these people that are saying heretic. I don't think blocking is, I don't like doing that because that feels kind of almost violent. Uh, but I mute them because I don't need to see all this hatred all the time. Are you, a, I always look, are you a verified always, Twitter user? Uh, yes, I think I am. Nice. Okay. Um, so, so I went to this one person who turns out, uh, that, He's a sede vacantist, right? <laughs> you know, so meaning that he doesn't feel like the seat of Peter is actually, you know, filled with the Pope. And I said to myself, he's calling me a heretic. Wait a minute, he's actually a heretic. <laughs> and I thought, this is insane. And I'm not going to tweet back to him and say, no, you're a heretic because <laughs> that's a little childish. But I said, that, I said that to a friend of mine and a friend of mine said, well, if a heretic is calling you a heretic, that must mean you're on the right page, you know? Yeah. So... So it's, good, it's crazy. Good. I mean, the key is the key is look, uh, as as Saint John the twenty third said, uh, quoting Augustine, I believe, in the essentials unity, uh, indifference is dialogue, and all things charity. That that's my motto. That's good. No I reason mean, to be uncharitable. I, I mean, even if you're talking to someone who you don't agree with or who says I don't believe Jesus is divine, you, you just you know you can you you can say well, well here's what I believe and here's here's why I believe that and here's my experience of Jesus and here's what's in the Gospels and but you don't you don't just call them names and certainly not anonymously which people do on the social media all the time. I think that the funniest thing that we've seen and funny I mean utterly tragic uh, is yeah. the rise of people with poor or no training. Like I would say. Oh. I have very little training, even though I have a master's degree in theology and I love nerding out about this stuff. I would never call myself a theologian. And I think there's a lot of people out there listening to this who would totally agree with me. But um, I know enough that I don't know a lot of stuff. And I think there are some people who know a little and they think they know everything. And so by doing that, it's like, like for instance, you know, there have been people talking about, did Jesus know he was God? I think, yes, in his human nature, he knew that he was God from the get-go, but in you know in a human way, right? So, um, but this notion—I think people are afraid of the humanity of Jesus. Uh, like I they want most... they want him to be Superman, right? But well, I agree. 
Yeah, I'm, I, I interrupted you again. I apologize. Oh, Father that's, James. That's, <laughs> keep, keep going. Keep going. No, I'm the catching fox. <laughs> yeah, that's literally how we roll. Um, but no, I just think the um, the humanity of Jesus. Like for instance, uh, so I was at a at a conference for young adults, and um, I was at. Uh, they were talking about how. One side were like charismatics and the other side were traditionalists and they both hated each other. And, <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah, right. So, but it's also funny. Uh, and so they, they, we were puzzling over this and praying about like how – so like in the morning we have praise and worship and all these charismatic hands are up in the air. And then all these other people um, put cross their, uh, their arms over their chest you know, and were just like defiant. And even though they were sitting in the front row, it's like they came for the knowledge, not for the worship. And um, so it was this back and forth. And so when – it came to be my time to do the 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 evening keynote. I just said, like, this is this is just evidence of your self justification, right? You're not relying on the merits of Christ and who He is and what He did. You're relying on belonging to my particular sub sub subgroup makes yeah. me better than you. And uh, and it really, I think, it showcases this the divisions within the church very human, but it showcases this profound sense of pelagianism like it's my it's my self-work my work i earned this and the people that are the most difficult to talk to are the people who like chesterton said right it's not the artist who's in the insane asylum it's the it's the mathematician i meet these people all the time who just want to scream and yell at me like and they know like all these fine details but it's like yeah i don't know yeah i know no it's it's very frustrating and i i see that a lot and i i see that all on social media i don't see it as much in person uh, because I think it's easier for people to say these things anonymously, yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, with, you know, they have two followers and it's clearly a made up account with a made up name. That's just, you know, <laughs> basically made up to flame people. So why would I take that stuff seriously? Um, and I, I think, you know, you're right. I think people are very uncomfortable with his humanity, extremely uncomfortable. Uh, and I think that the, the, the great heresy of Twitter is, is, Docetism or docetism, you know, which is that he only seemed to be human, but he was really God. But he's human. And what does that mean? What does it mean to have a human consciousness? What does it mean for him to have grown in wisdom? What does it mean for him to say, I don't know? You know, someone pointed out a very interesting thing on Twitter to me, which I thought was really interesting, which I and I I actually appreciate when people are doing this gently. Uh, They said, Remember the great story of the Roman centurion, right, where, you know, he says, come to my, you know, my servant is sick. I'm sure you know the story. And, mm-hmm. and Jesus says, I'll come to my, to your house. And he says, no, you know, I've been under my care. And I say, go. And this one goes. And I say, do. And this one does this. And I'm not worthy. And it's said, which I thought was fascinating. I never thought about this. And Jesus was amazed by the man's faith. Why is he amazed? If he knows everything. And Jesus was he had exactly predicted what this man was exactly. (laughs) And Jesus felt affirmed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. And you know we laugh, but it's it. These are really these. You say that to people, and it freaks them out. The story that really freaks people out is that Mark story. You know, Jesus saying it is not right to take the children's fruit and throw it to the dogs. That is a very harsh statement. And people say, well, he was testing your faith. Well, you know, what have I called you a dog? Well, it, it didn't mean that in first century Palestine. Yes, it did. You know, so so all these things we have to grapple with. And I think it's it's fascinating. We're not going to understand until we get up to heaven, really, and can talk to Jesus. And But that doesn't mean you condemn someone else's interpretation. 
you know, uh, you know, as you speak. And I think people are uncomfortable with his humanity. They're uncomfortable with mystery. And most of all, they're uncomfortable with, and this is the whole thing, uncertainty. Mm-hmm. They yep. want black and white. And unfortunately, Jesus is not black or white. People can't, you know, he is, he is bigger than our boxes and he's bigger than our categories. And as, and, and as, as Thomas Aquinas said, if you have defined it, it is not God. Yeah. So people need to be you comfortable just, with the mystery. Did you hear that little gasp of wind? That was Luke getting his mind blown right now. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> Whoa, dude. That just, <laughs> I just um, uh, had my kind of reason moment there. Well, I mean, like, even <laughs> if um, oh, you look at his first miracle, it's his mind being changed by Mary, right? Exactly. He says no. Yep. And guess what? Uh, he is reluctant to do it. And Mary, as I say in this Jesus at Pilgrimage book, Mary seems to understand his vocation better than he does at that point. Oh, yeah. And why is that? She's had a longer time to meditate on it. You know, woman, by the way, woman's also harsh, too. Woman, it is not my time. What concern is this of yours and of mine? That is now if Jesus knew that he was going to, you know, perform that miracle, or if that was his time, then he would have said, you know, of course, yes. Yeah. You know, but but it's a it's a really powerful moment. And, you know, it you know, why why does Jesus need to be told he's God's beloved son at the baptism? Why doesn't he even know I mean, what if he knows? What's the point? So so there are all these questions that are. There's no answer to them. There are ways of looking at them, but and you know it's helpful. To th- but but here the the reason I'm bringing up the most controversial things is to kind of challenge listeners to saying it's Jesus is not black and white, you know, and fully human, fully divine. Uh, really, you know, we can't get our minds around that. I mean, one of the things I like to say to people is this, which also blows their minds: Jesus is fully human when he's raising Lazarus from the dead, and he's fully divine when he's uh, hammering a nail into a piece of wood in the carpentry workshop. It's, it's not one or the other. It's both at all times, which is beautiful. Uh, speaking specific. So one of the ways that I, I, this drives me nuts, the right left divide. Um, and it's a kind of a reoccurring theme in our show because our show kind of be, it's trying to approach the idea of the collision of faith and culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and just talking about this and, you know, from our, half-formed perspective, but with a lot of opinions. Um, one of the things that I read a while ago was the Huffington Post and uh, this this particular article about right-wing Catholics versus left-wing Catholics. And the woman w- would call herself a left-wing Catholic or a progressive Catholic, and she was like, you know, we get all the cool people on our side, and we care <laughs> about the, we, we care about <laughs> the poor, and, yeah. you know. You know yeah, you know, and John, John Paul didn't care about the poor. I mean, right. like, that's the thing that just drives you crazy. So go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, well so uh, interrupting me again. Uh, I know. It's terrible. It's, <laughs> people on the left, that's all people on the left do. It's terrible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they, uh, heretic, uh, they, yeah. <laughs> that's right. She has, <laughs> <laughs> but they have this. The, she so she has this thing where the right is really concerned about an individual's sex life, and the left is really concerned about having a just and peaceful society, and where people are happy and and growing in love together and all this stuff. And it's just fascinating to me because when I I think by the grace of God, I read a, uh, a passage from uh, Doctor Peter Kraft where he says. Mm-hmm. Um, 
he wrote it in the 90s, and he said, one of the greatest tools of the devil in the 20th century, and I think it's only more so now, is the labels conservative and liberal, because with that, you can dismiss people or ideas yeah. out of hand. And yeah. that really struck me, because I would say at that time, I, I mean, part of my conversion is going from being a conservative American who agreed with the Catholic Church to being someone who engaged in the ascent of faith and everything else was redefined by his Catholic faith. Like that was a, a big deal for me. Um, so like, I find like doing things like I just did a theology, of the body week at my church where we teach mm-hmm. teenagers and adults and all this <laughs> stuff. And there's this, to me, it, there was this seamless garment of living for the poor and the church's sexual morality and um, you know, just human love in general and how it images the divine and the gospel. They, you know, so the part of living the theology of the body, I said, was to go into your closet and within 30 days empty out half of it. And mm-hmm. everyone there was just like, whoa, okay, yeah, let's mm-hmm. do this. Like, you know, it was this natural kind of outgrowing. Like, if I love, if God really is this self-donating love, and Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, and my sexuality, my life, my happiness, all this stuff is bound in becoming, giving a sincere gift of myself. That affects the way I treat my next-door neighbor, not just how I treat my spouse in bed or something mm-hmm. like that. And you see this kind of seamless garment of mm-hmm. theology, you know, uh, morality, politics, all kind of weaving itself. That I find, though, that a lot of times when you actually get out in the open with people, it's, it's not like that. It's either, no, it's this thing over here or this thing over there. Yeah, well, because it's easier to just stay in your little silo and and say uh, the kind of Catholic I am is the Catholic who's concerned with this. Yeah. And I'm I'm happy with this. And usually it's, you know, it's people on both sides or in both. I don't even like to talk about sides, but like both all parts of the church that say, you know, being Catholic means this and I'm not going to be concerned about that. Well, no, actually being Catholic is concerned about everything. Um, you know, I think you're right. I think that Peter Kraft thing is brilliant because uh, people dismiss you, and then when you go against their uh, stereotypes, they don't they don't understand you, or they think that you're being uh, clever. So, for example, I like to tell people I, I sometimes do this on purpose. Um, you know, if someone's accusing me of you know being too left or whatever, too progressive, I'll say, oh, you know, it's funny. I was. Um, I was thinking about that a few years ago when I was in Lourdes. <laughs> and they, what? what do you, will you go to Lourdes? But yeah, I have a great devotion to, which is true, to St. Bernadette and Our Lady of Lourdes. And you can see them just, that doesn't compute. Yeah. You know, how is that possible? Or that first things loved your book uh, with the living with the saints or at home with the saints. Yeah. And, and oh. it's just, it's just, it's just, it, you know, yeah. it's, yeah, thank you. It's just, um, you know, Categorizing people is just terrible. And you know what? Here's the thing. We always go back to Jesus does not categorize people. For Jesus, there's no other. There's no person who is an other. There's no person who is just a prostitute or just a fisherman or just a Roman centurion. These are individuals. And so the the Roman notice the Roman centurion, when he comes to Jesus, Jesus could have said to him, Pagan, yeah. go home. Ew. He doesn't. Ew is right. He says you know, he heals the guy. He does a miracle for him. I mean, that, you know, you know, all these people who are kind of seen as, quote unquote, unworthy. And that that should be our model. And I think that to to sort of be in awe of the person before you and the way that God has worked through him or her is is so much more important. And I think that really is what Francis does. Francis talks about accompaniment and encounter. 
And so he's willing to meet people where they are. And the, I think, what do I do with this, the, this sort of anger and this, this sort of uh, mistrust? I mean, I try to confront it, but I also try to not engage it and let me, let it drag me down because it's, it's endless. And, you know, as you were saying, uh, you know, you can get into a, you know, you get into an hour long debate with, you know, someone who doesn't know really what they're talking about and doesn't know you and doesn't care. And it's just to score points and make him or her feel vindicated. But have you read uh, Sherry Waddell's Forming Intentional Disciples? Have you read that book? Uh, no, it's a great, great title, though. Yeah, it's a, and it's it's a phenomenal book. I think it's one of the I mean. Minus your books, it's one of the most important books written in the last ten years. I mean, your books, your, you. your books are thank on every you. every bookshelf in every Franciscan uh, monastery. But uh, oh, that's nice, thank you. <laughs> but uh, forming intentional disciples, I, I feel like the reason why I bring it up is number one, I have a total like fanboy crush on her. But this, did I say that out loud? This, uh, that's okay. One of the tools I think, because I feel like I'm in the business of conversion. Like my job is to serve people to bring them to Christ. And yeah. so, um, so I need to get people out of this mindset of, oh, well, you're on the left, oh, you're on the right, blah, blah, blah. And so I think her book, where she talks a lot about, like, the unique charisms of the Holy Spirit, one of the ways to think of the church is, like, it's not like, oh, it's all about social justice and, we, and like Francis says, then we're just an NGO. You know, oh, it's all mm-hmm. about, you know, sexual morality and all this stuff, and then we're just busybodies. It's all this, it's mm-hmm. all that. But it's that notion of charism, right? So it's mm-hmm. like I have a call and a gift by God to be concerned for the poor in a unique way. And we often That's view right. the world through our charisms, right? And so the notion is to pull, to acknowledge like, yes, this is what God's given me. You know, being a, an evangelist is what God's given you. A prophet's <laughs> what God's given you. But I, I need to be, you know, I, I need to be about this. And the recognition that the church, the mission of the church is global and we all need to support that that it gets incarnated in my own life in a unique and specific way. And I don't need to absolutize that. I totally agree. And nor do you have to do everything. Uh, you know, I think that I totally agree. I mean, I think St. Paul's image of the body is, you know, my favorite image of the church. And, you know, the eye doesn't say to the hand, I don't need you. The hand doesn't say to the foot, I don't need you or what good are you? And I think that's, I think that's a very good point. Uh, you know, we do need to understand the mission of the church and, you know, the gospels as kind of all encompassing, but not all of us can do the same things. And not all of us have the gifts mm-hmm. to do the same things. And not all of us have the inclinations to do the same things. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I would never say to mother Teresa, for example, I'll make up something silly. Um, <clears throat> um, why aren't you directing more retreats? <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. why, why aren't you writing more books? I mean, don't you think it's important to write books? You know, look at, look at, uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas, he wrote the Summa. What's wrong with you? That's, or I wouldn't I just never say to, um, uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas, you know, why are you opening up more soup kitchens? It's just they're just different cares, and that's okay, you know. And and Mother Teresa works with the poor so that um, Pope Benedict can write books, right? And uh, you know, I work in a magazine so that you can work in a podcast, and another person works in a hospital so that someone else can. Uh, you know, um, you know, work, you know, with with uh, women who are thinking about getting abortions. It's just, it's just different charisms. That's okay. And I think the danger is when we say that if you are not doing X, then you're not a good Catholic. Yeah. yeah. And this person may not be called to do X. They might not be any good at it. I mean, they might. They literally might not be good at that particular kind of ministry. And so that that's a huge danger as well. Um. 
you know, it's okay that people write more about someone writes more about abortion than they write about social justice. Maybe, maybe that's what they're passionate about. Fine. And vice versa. I don't think that anyone who's sort of truly pro-life, you know, would deny social justice. And I don't think that anyone who's truly social justice would deny anything that's, you know, uh, you know, sort of broadly pro-life. But we we get into these silos and you're right. It's and I have to say, I actually think this is a very small percentage of Catholics that we're talking about. The the real rigid, as a friend of mine calls them, rigidarians on both sides. I think most people are just trying to live good lives and trying to be kind and loving and, you know, give honor to God. I think it's it's pretty simple, you know. This a lot of this is is sort of endemic to just what I call Catholic land. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you, all three of us live in Catholic land, and that's where we see most of it. But I actually think it's a very small percentage of the church. If, uh, as, we, as we wrap up now, uh, I want to thank you for being here with us um, and, and talking with us for this wonderful conversation for the last hour. Um, Thanks. You have, you have over 10, 12 <clears throat> books uh, published. Um, what book, to give people a sense of who you are, I mean, obviously you have your conversion story in good company, My Life with the Saints, which is extremely highly rated. Um, you know, you talk about you have stuff, wisdom from Thomas Merton, becoming who you are. Uh, what would you want people? Let's say people have heard about you. They've seen you on TV. They've seen you in the papers. They want to get a better sense of who you are in terms of as a man, as a your devotional life as a Catholic, your formation, like maybe this our exile or. Mm-hmm. I, I would say Jesus. I, I think that that's the, the, the book that I'm the most. I don't want to say proud of. That doesn't sound right. I, I think is the book that I, I'm happiest that I wrote. I mean, because he's the center of my life. That really is, that. That's, that's the book I feel is like the most important. And it's a story. It's not only the Gospels, but it's also, you follow along on a real life pilgrimage that I did. You go through Jesus's life. We meditate on it together. Uh, and I, you know, I offer some sort of scripture commentary along the way and talk about spiritual questions that, that each of these passages raise. And so I, I would really recommend Jesus, which by the way is now on paperback. So it makes it a lot easier to buy. You, you get it on Amazon prime for $10. That's right. That's right. Read by the author. All, you know that I read it out, uh, for the audiobook. It took me two weeks every day from nine to one o'clock. I thought I was going to go out of my mind. Uh, Ooh. Oh yeah. That sounds very monotonous and horrible <laughs> well you know if you if you had a voice like gregory peck or morgan freeman it'd be great but <laughs> yeah. i do not so it was a little monotonous and horrible <laughs> yeah right that's right jesus has read by god <laughs> nice uh luke oh, well, you want to wrap this it up has been, oh yeah um this has been awesome thank you thank you thank you thank you just, just drinking time out of your um out of your day and stuff oh to chat with us uh where can um, people find you on the interwebs? I think the best place, uh, I have a Facebook page, which is Father James Martin. I think it's FR James Martin. Um, I'm on Twitter at James Martin SJ, Society of Jesus, and I'm on Instagram at James Martin SJ. Uh, and fortunately or unfortunately, my publisher set up a website for me, which is also James Martin SJ. So I think Facebook is the place I'm most active and that I put the most stuff up on. Okay, easy so, enough. So that's where we'll go and uh, and post all of our our memes on your website. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. Heretic, right? Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> it'll say heretic, but it'll have a beautiful sunset photo, and so and then it'll say hashtag you know, blessed. <laughs> well, the ones I like are the uh, the ones that are kind of like sound nice, but they're actually mean. You know, Father 
I'm going to pray that you don't go to hell. Thank you, smiley face. (laughs) (laughs) I think we just have the title for our show. Excellent. There you go. Good deal. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you again. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye, Luke. Bye. All right. See you guys. Let me know when it's up and I'll uh, I'll uh, post it all over the place for you. Y'all ready for this?